podcast everybody the podcast is tanner talks about stuff that happened i'm tanner and i am going to be talking about some stuff that happened as per usual of course thank you all for joining me today this is our third episode in our conflict of nations series and this series is examining the causes and effects of the first and second world wars going all the way back from the fields of waterloo and the napoleonic wars all the way forward to the dissolution of the soviet union in 1991 We're covering a lot of ground here. In this episode, we are covering about a 20-year period between uh, around 1857 to uh, around 1877. But before we begin, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop me a five-star review to let me know that you are enjoying what you're hearing. Not only does it get other people involved with the conversations about history, it also gives Tanner a little ego boost, which, you know... Let's be real. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Also, a reminder that this podcast is listener-supported, so if you want to support the podcast, there is a link in the description of the podcast, or you can head over to search. Tanner talks about stuff that happened on Anchor.fm. There is a button there that you can push that is the support button, is where you can donate financially to the podcast. That would be tremendously appreciated. All right, without further ado, let's get on to the episode. When we last left off, Russia had been clobbered in the aftermath of the Crimean War, but had resolved to modernize its military and industrialize its society to match the might of the other European nations. The Ottoman Empire had been left humiliated with Britain and France, refusing to recognize them as a major power despite winning the war against Russia. The Kingdom of Sardinia in Italy had shown off its military prowess in the war, which invigorated Italians living in Austria-dominated Italy. France had reasserted itself as the leading power of Europe, and Britain had brought back the Royal Navy to their dominion of the sea. And this is where we find ourselves post-1856, and there are several major topics we're going to be covering in this episode. Before we start, if you haven't listened to the first two episodes of the Conflict of Nations series, I recommend you go back and cover those before jumping in here. You may think that you understand what's going on in Europe at this time, but I do cover a lot of minute details that you may have missed, and I do recover in this episode, which because they play a big part in the events that take place in this episode. So I would recommend going back and seeing that. There are a lot of moving parts, and it all fits together in unexpected ways, so to understand all of it, you should get the full story. Today, we're covering four different European conflicts. The Italian Wars of Unification, the Austro-Prussian War, the Franco-Prussian War, and the Great Eastern Crisis. So, we got a lot to cover, and no time to waste. So without further ado, let's just hop in our time machine and travel to... Whoop, wrong button. 
1859, three years after the end of the Crimean War, and we will first hop right over to the Kingdom of Sardinia in northwestern Italy. In 1859, Italy was not a country. Remember, it was not a country. Remember that. It was a collection of several different states governed by various powers. In the north, Lombardy, Tuscany, Venice, Modena, and Parma were governed by Austria, while Piedmont and Sardinia were governed by the Kingdom of Sardinia. In the center were the Papal States, governed by the Catholic Church, and in the south, the Kingdom of Two Sicilies, governed over Naples and Sicily. The boot part and the thing the boot is kicking. Well, there are a significant number of Italian nationalists who have already been waiting until the right moment to strike in order to unify Italy, and with the Austrians being humiliated and isolated during and after the Crimean War, it was high time the Italian peninsula saw some militaristic excitement. All they needed was a real military power to make the first move. Following the Crimean War, the Kingdom of Sardinia, remember, they sent a bunch of troops to help with the war effort, tried to bring Italian unification to the table during the peace talks. France and Britain had been receptive to the idea and offered their sympathies, but knew if they supported such unification outright, it may anger Austria, and they couldn't risk another European war just as the Crimean War was ending. To them, the unification would have to wait. Understandably, this upset a lot of Italian nationals. While France and Britain basked in their personal glory following the war, the Italians were kind of left to fend for themselves. Several years later, in 1859, the Kingdom of Sardinia approached Napoleon III, Emperor of France, directly concerning Italian unification. They needed help, and France would be a mighty ally in their struggle. Though, again, sympathetic, Napoleon III did not want to risk outright war with Austria and declined. And again, the Italians were upset, and this time, one of them decided to do something kinda rash about it. Felice Orsini, Italian nationalist and leader of the secret society of the Carbonari, who had been fighting against Austrian rule since the early 1800s, took matters into his own hands. With a few of his followers, he infiltrated France and ambushed the royal entourage on their way to the theater, throwing several bombs at the carriages and killing eight French nationals, wounding dozens of others. Napoleon III and his wife were unhurt, and they actually proceeded onward to the theater because they didn't want to cause a panic. Felice and his accomplices were apprehended the next day, and many French people called for retribution against the Italians. Napoleon III, however, responded very Curiously. In the face of an Italian assassination attempt as a direct result of his actions, instead of revenge, Napoleon III decided to do some introspection. He realized, man, this whole unification thing is a big deal to the Italians. And on top of this, Felice Orsini was sentenced to death by the guillotine, in true French fashion, but left Napoleon III two letters, one pleading him to take up the cause of Italian unification, and one he requested to be dispersed among the Italian youth, where he passed the torch of independence to them and begged them to keep it lit. From these letters and some timely introspection, Napoleon III decided to revisit the idea of helping Italy unify and get the Austrians out. France had some historical grievances with Austria anyway, so it didn't seem like such a bad idea to get closer to a new, potentially powerful ally, while robbing Austria of some of its supposedly stolen authority. 
On January 29, 1859, Napoleon III signed a secret treaty with the Kingdom of Sardinia, promising to come to their aid in the case of Austrian aggression. Now, what Napoleon did not say is that France would come to Sardinia's aid if Sardinia initiated the war. The Austrians had to initiate the war. A few months later, the Kingdom of Sardinia provoked Austria by mobilizing their troops and moving them to within striking distance of the Austrian border. Austria responded by mobilizing its forces as well before offering an ultimatum to the Kingdom of Sardinia. Demobilize all forces or face the wrath of Austria. Austria wasn't worried. The Kingdom of Sardinia was a small nation with an inferior army. Any war with them would be quick and decisive. But what Austria didn't know was that as they issued this ultimatum, French troops were flooding into Austria by train, notably the first ever mass use of railways, in preparation for the coming clash. Sardinia rejected the ultimatum, and Austria declared war. Sardinian and Austrian troops began skirmishing along the border before the Austrian House of Habsburg received horrifying news. Among the Italians were soldiers bearing blue coats and bright red pants, the famous uniform of the French army. The secret alliance became clear. Austria threw everything it had at the alliance, but it was futile. The Austrian army was led by old commanders using old tactics on evolving battlefields, and the Austrian army was full of Austrian nationals who had little passion for defending Italian land. Napoleon III led the French army along with the Sardinians into battle after battle and won victory after victory against the Austrians. Within three months, the war was over. Italy occupied and annexed the central states of Lombardy, Tuscany, and Parma, and handed over two small principalities of Savoy and Nice in the far northwest of Italy over to France as payment for the war. In the next year, scattered rebel groups on the Italian peninsula, as well as in Venice and Genoa, would unite under one banner to drive out the Austrians and create a united Italy. The Kingdom of Naples and Sicily both fell to Italian nationalists, and in 1861, the city of Rome was made the new capital of the world's newest nation, Italy. The entire peninsula was now united under one banner. Italy was united. Granted, there were some growing pains. Some rebel groups still loyal to Austria, Naples, Sicily, etc. would spend the next few years fighting the new Italy, but overall, it was a united nation. Boom. Done. But not quite. Let's take a look at what's happening further north at the same time. Just a hop, skip, and a jump across the Alps and over the Rhineland is the nation of Prussia. If you were wondering why Prussia didn't get in on the action during the Crimean War, here's why. In the late 1840s, Prussia was a patchwork of territories ranging from modern-day Poland to modern-day Western Germany. It was a large area, but it was falling on hard times politically. Within Prussia were numerous independent kingdoms, and there was division within the country over if Prussia should unite with the rest of the German Confederation to become a united Germany, or if it should remain a collection of independent monarchies. With this division, Prussia wasn't interested in participating in the wars the nations around it participated in because it was fighting its demons from within. Enter Otto von Bismarck. Otto was born in 1815 to a wealthy land-owning family in eastern Prussia, and his father fought with the Prussian army against Napoleon I. 
Otto climbed the political ladder through his 30s and served as ambassador to Russia and France on separate occasions before he became president of Prussia. During his time working with France and Russia, he began developing opinions of the two nations and diplomatically positioned himself as a barrier between the two nations, as to keep them from forming an alliance. During his time as an ambassador, he had adopted the idea of a united Germany, which he had previously been opposed to, and he knew if Germany united, they would be a formidable foe on the world stage, which the rest of Europe likely wouldn't be happy with. Otto was successful in keeping France and Russia from allying, at least for a time. In order to unify Germany, Otto needed to first gain the trust of the German Confederation. If you remember, this is a collection of ethnically German states caught in both Prussian and Austrian territory. His chance came in 1848, when Denmark tried to annex one of the states in the Confederation, called Schleswig, into their territory. In response, Prussia called up the armies of the German Confederation to march on Denmark, and for the next two years, war was fought between Denmark and the German Confederation. It's important here to note that the German Confederation housed soldiers hailing from Prussia and Austria, because this is going to play directly into the next series of events. Obviously, having two major powers fight against them didn't bode well for Denmark, and Schleswig was never annexed into Denmark. It was relinquished back into the German Confederation. And here's where things get a little bit complicated. The war was fought primarily in two German states, Schleswig and Holstein. Remember these two states, they are important. Austrian and Prussian troops had fought side by side through the conflict, and both nations felt that they should be compensated for their efforts. The compromise was this. Prussia would get to annex Schleswig and Holstein, but Austria would be named the predominant authority over the German Confederation, the whole thing. Normally, Prussia wouldn't agree to such high demands, but prior to the Crimean War, if you remember, Austria was allied with Russia, and Prussia didn't want to piss off its two neighbors. Flash forward 10 years now, and Denmark is again trying to assert some dominance over Schleswig, and again, the German Confederation dares them to throw the first punch, resulting in another war, much shorter, but just as bloody. And this war ends the same way. Denmark backs down, and Prussia and Austria are left to divide the spoils. Again, the states of Schleswig and Holstein. If you're looking at the Danish peninsula, Schleswig is a territory in the middle of the peninsula, and Holstein is a territory at the base of it, right next to what was then Prussian territory. The agreement was that Prussia would control Schleswig, and Austria would control Holstein, which separated Prussia from its newest territory. Again, things are going to get kind of complicated here. Otto von Bismarck saw the German Confederation as the perfect location for the German Empire he had been dreaming of, and if he could get these German states to align themselves with Prussia, that dream would be a reality. However, most of these states were pretty cool with being independent at the time. Plus, Austria held dominion over half of them. If they were going to align with Bismarck and Prussia, they would be in flagrant treason against the nation who supposedly ruled them. Bismarck needed a way to liberate these German states from Austria's iron grip, and with the situation in Denmark, he saw his opportunity. The situation was this. Austria went behind Prussia's back and told the two territories, Schleswig and Holstein, that they should be intermingling more and act more as one unified state rather than two separate states. While in hindsight this 
really wasn't a big deal. Bismarck needed it to be in order to justify his next course of action. He blew the whole situation out of proportion and accused Austria of undermining the diplomacy in the region. He severed diplomatic ties with Austria. He sent envoys to each of the 34 German states in the German Confederation in order to ask them to align themselves with Prussia in case this escalated into an armed conflict. And so Austria did the same. The German states began choosing sides. In the end, 14 states sided with Prussia, 12 sided with Austria, 6 remained neutral and chose not to participate, and 2, ironically Schleswig and Holstein, couldn't come to an agreement and remained divided from within. War was on the horizon and everyone knew it. Prussia and Austria began calling up soldiers from the various German states in order to bolster and mobilize their ranks, and just before the first shots rang out, Prussia sought some unexpected help from another nation who they knew had a history of grievances with Austria. Yep, on June 14, 1866, war broke out between Prussia and Austria, and on the same day, the brand new nation of Italy sent troops to the front lines, prepared to regain the last Italian territory that Austria held, Venice. Panicked, Russia reached out to its neighbors of France and Russia, but both were already sitting back in their lazy boys to watch the show. Russia was still bitter about Austria abandoning it during the Crimean War, and France saw Italy and Prussia already about to tear the nation limb from limb. And Napoleon didn't see much potential benefit from getting involved. Let's be real, this was over before it began. For only six weeks, Austria and its allied German states clashed with Prussia and its respective states, along with Italy in a surprisingly bloody war, before Prussia offered peace to the Austrians in exchange for complete rulership over the states who had allied themselves to Prussia with no Austrian influence, along with Schleswig and Holstein. Prussia could have easily continued the war and pushed further into Austrian territory, but Bismarck was worried that if they did, it would create a long-standing animosity between the nations that he didn't think would be beneficial to either party. Austria, no surprise, accepted and signed a peace treaty with Italy as well, begrudgingly handing over Venice to the Italians. Austria retained control of many of the southern states in the German Confederation, so overall, it wasn't so much a devastating loss as it was a humiliating one. Austrian troops returned to their homes defeated, and peace, once again, returned to the European continent for a time. But not for long. Alright, we've got some politics to get through right now. The war between Austria and Prussia just ended, and Prussia has split the German Confederation into two parts. The Northern German Confederation, which it has complete control over, and the Southern German Confederation, which Austria has control over. Italy now has Venice, Austria is hum humiliated, things are peaceful for the time, but in four years, war is going to break out again. So how does it come to that? Let's start here. In 1866, Italy acquires Venice from Austria as a result of the war, right? Well, actually, not exactly. See, back in 1865, Napoleon III and Otto von Bismarck had a meeting where France promised not to get involved in the event of a Prussian war with Austria, and it would not ally for the foreseeable future. But Napoleon was a sneaky dude, and months later, he met with the Austrian leaders in secret and told them that France would not ally with Prussia if Austria and Prussia went to war in exchange for 
the territory of Venice following a war, as well as a series of territories to the east of France that would fall under French influence after the conflict known as Alsace-Lorraine. This agreement directly violated Napoleon III's agreement with Bismarck. As we know, France didn't get involved in the war with Prussia and Austria. Austria gifted France the neutral territory of Alsace-Lorraine, which then fell under French influence, and gifted France Venice. Why did Austria want France to have Venice instead of Italy? Because that put a wall between Italy and Austria. Jokes on Austria, though. Napoleon III immediately gifted Venice to Italy upon its acquisition, so it all played out in Italy and Prussia's favor. Despite this, Napoleon III had gone behind Bismarck's back and violated their agreement, and Bismarck was deeply unhappy about this. He was building a new superpower, and getting played by Prussia's neighbor wasn't a good look for his nation. His new united Prussia was not yet a united Germany, and somehow he had to make that happen. And with his newfound distrust of Napoleon III, Bismarck had an idea. He met with his military staff in Prussia, and the group of them pretty easily came to the consensus that France had established themselves as a chief rival of Prussia, and its influence stood directly in the way of unification. Traditionally, France was a destabilizer of politics in Europe, and if it were to remain a superpower, it would continue to do so. One of their chief concerns was that during the reign of Napoleon III, he had doubled the size of the French overseas empire, including holdings in Vietnam, Cambodia, Morocco, and the South Pacific. At this time, Prussia was not an overseas colonial power. For centuries, it had been dealing with its own internal unrest, and for the last 50 years, been putting the pieces of the late Holy Roman Empire back together. Because of this, Bismarck knew that Napoleon III did not take Prussia seriously on the world stage. He needed to do something that would make Napoleon see that he meant business. And in 1868, Bismarck saw an opportunity and took it. Spain was in turmoil. Revolutionaries had toppled the reign of Isabella II and exiled her from the country. Isabella had family in France and took refuge with them, so Bismarck sent an envoy to the new revolutionary government and offered a Prussian prince to be their ruler, named Leopold. Leo was a member of the House of Hohenzollern, and which that was a dynasty of royalty dating back generations, so it was fitting that he should lead a group of revolutionaries with little direction. The Spanish accepted, and Leo headed to Spain. But France would have none of that. Napoleon knew that if Leopold took the throne of Spain, then Spain would ally with Prussia, which meant Napoleon would have to fight on two fronts in the event of war. He immediately protested the exchange, and Bismarck invited France to come to the table to negotiate. Napoleon sent an envoy, Count Vincent Benedetti, to Prussia with a list of demands, and Bismarck ordered Wilhelm I of Prussia, who held one of Prussia's highest offices, to meet with the envoy. According to those who witnessed the meeting, it was cordial, civil, and informal. Wilhelm and Vincent took a long walk and discussed matters of international affairs, eventually leaving with a handshake and good wishes. Overall, not much was accomplished through the meeting, except perhaps re-establishing the bridge between the rival nations. Maybe this would turn out okay, after all. But Bismarck didn't think so. In order to achieve his master plan of German unification, Bismarck needed to create a common German enemy, and the perfect enemy was France. Yet Wilhelm had gotten all buddy-buddy with Vincent, and this was exactly the opposite of what Bismarck needed. What he needed was to act fast. 
Wilhelm gave Bismarck the transcript of the meeting and asked that it be published to the public, since they were also wondering if Prussia was about to go to war, and Bismarck agreed to publish it. However, when Wilhelm left, Bismarck began changing the transcript. He changed specific words to make them seem like the two men were challenging and even insulting one another, and then he sent the transcripts to be published, ordering it to be spread throughout Prussia and then transported to France. This was done. The Prussian people interpreted the transcript to be an insult to Prussian nationalism, and the French interpreted it as an insult to French nationalism. In the following weeks, thousands of Prussian and French people would march in their respective capitals and demand for war. I can just imagine Bismarck smiling from his office. He had done it. War with France was coming. It would unite the German people and lead to a bloody showdown between the two greatest superpowers on the European continent. All that was necessary now is who would fire the first shot. Napoleon III mobilized his army toward the border with Prussia, and Bismarck responded in kind. Parades of soldiers left Paris and Berlin to roaring applause en route to what would become the battlefields of one of the most pivotal conflicts in European history. The Franco-Prussian War had begun. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Franco-Prussian War, the repercussions of it, and figure out where Europe goes from here. Stick with us. At the onset of the war, Napoleon III had been hard at work reinvigorating French nationalism for two decades before. He'd sent his army into the Crimean War, helped Italy fight off Austria, fought wars with Algeria and Mexico, and greatly expanded France's overseas holdings in various parts of the world. However, as a result of these conflicts, France's military was lacking in soldiers. Many had been lost in a number of wars, and Napoleon had been forced to enact lengthy conscription periods to replenish his armies. The French military could only field around 250,000 regular troops in the event of a war with Prussia, and with conscription, another 500,000 troops could bolster their lines, but most would be untrained and unreliable. In contrast, Prussia had not been focusing on colonialism, it had not participated in the Crimean War and had been quietly building its military while the rest of Europe bickered. Though France did have one of the most modern breech-loading rifles at its disposal, Prussia had been spending its time researching artillery and was bringing large, long-range artillery guns to the table, along with an expected 1.2 million soldiers. On top of this, French military leaders had planned to fight a defensive war with Prussia, but Napoleon III wanted instead to go on the offensive, to not only expand French borders, but also to solidify his place in the history books alongside his legendary uncle. As soldiers on both sides migrated toward the border, Napoleon's generals scrambled to adjust. Napoleon's plan initially seemed to work pretty well. The French army smashed into Prussian territory and instantly established a beachhead by occupying several towns in the area. When news reached the French people, they rejoiced and celebrated their brave emperor. However, the Prussians struck back with a vengeance. Turns out the Prussians were waiting for the French to attack as part of a larger plan. The French tactics were relatively disorganized and were essentially a series of quickly planned attacks with the goal of pushing as far into Prussian territory as possible, as quickly as possible. With an army heavily reliant on militia and conscripts, 
this was a dangerous and, if I'm going to be honest, kind of a stupid tactic, and the Prussians wasted no time in exploiting it. With meticulously planned attacks, the Prussians drove the French back into their home country in a series of crushing defeats before executing what they expected to be a final blow. At the village of Sedan in France, the Prussians cornered a massive French army of 130,000 troops, including Emperor Napoleon III. On the 1st of September, 1870, Napoleon ordered his army to barricade the streets of the city and use the old stone houses as cover for the defense. The French began the battle by attempting to surround a larger Prussian force and press them into submission, but Prussian artillery beat them back. The Prussians, supported by their cutting-edge artillery, attempted to storm the town, but the French were able to fend them off. All day long, these clashes continued until the Prussians surrounded the town. The following day, under heavy artillery bombardment and after several failed attacks, Napoleon III ordered the white flag be hoisted. Prussian bombardment ceased, and the entire French army was captured, with the exception of 14,000 wounded and a number of deserters. I mean, essentially, the war was over. Not even two months into the war, it was over. Napoleon III abdicated the throne and the monarchy was immediately dissolved, sending the French government into chaos. Though, they refused to accept defeat. The war was going to continue for several more months, culminating with the Prussians besieging and starving out the city of Paris during the infamous Paris Commune and the eventual French surrender, but the Battle of Sedan was an effective end of any large-scale fighting in the Franco-Prussian War. France was beaten. Bismarck had won. Now was the time to make his dream of a united Germany a reality. At the onset of the war, Bismarck had called on members of the entire German Confederation to join in the fight, which was one of the main reasons it was such a quick and decisive war. As the war hurtled to a speedy end, Bismarck pointed it out to the German people that it was a demonstration of what a united Germany could accomplish. As the dust settled, the states in the German Confederation ceded their authority to Bismarck, and the North and South German Confederations, along with Prussia, unified into the First German Empire, with Otto von Bismarck at the head. He had done it. However, it had come at a cost. Refusing to assist Russia during the Crimean War, usurping Britain at having the most professional army in the world, kicking the crap out of France and Austria, and overall upsetting the balance of power in Europe had left the new Germany without any real friends. While it could hypothetically fend off invasions from really any foreign power individually, if the continent were to form a coalition similar to that which brought down Napoleon so many years ago, it would be a bloody, costly, and dangerous war. Bismarck needed an ally. So he turned to Austria first, and attempted to rebuild the bridge between the two nations. They had a shared enemy in France, and Austria had recently become a dual monarchy with Hungary, in which both sides retained autonomy but answered to the same monarch. Emperor Franz Joseph I. So having an alliance between two large nations who were neighbors was beneficial to each. They set their differences aside and began nurturing a fruitful relationship. Afterward, Prussia turned back to Russia, apologizing for not helping in the Crimean War and forming an alliance with Russia which made a two-pronged war impossible. The German Empire was safe. Europe was, once again, balanced. 
Austria, Russia, and Prussia dominated the East, and Britain, France, and Italy dominated the West. Unfriendly, yes, but balanced. They could turn their attention now to a problem they'd been putting off for years, the Great Eastern Crisis. Let's go back to the Crimean War really quick. Remember how the war ended and the Ottoman Empire was humiliated and bankrupt even though they technically won the war? Well, to bring them out of bankruptcy, they took out a series of hefty loans from their benefactors like Britain and France. They did plan to pay these back over time, but this didn't happen because instead of putting the money back into rebuilding their economy, it was spent building lavish new palaces and rebuilding the Ottoman navy. By the 1870s, the Ottomans were defaulting on these loans and establishing hefty taxes on their populations, including their satellite states in the Balkans, which were Serbia, Bulgaria, Montenegro, and Romania. This angered the populations of those nations who were already getting restless under Ottoman rule and itching for independence. Beginning around 1875, uprisings erupted in the Balkans protesting Ottoman overreach, and Ottoman armies were sent in to quell the unrest, making matters worse. The Ottoman Empire owed money, and if it lost the Balkans, it was unlikely that the great powers would see any of that money, so they were reluctant to intervene. But on the same page, if they didn't intervene, these Balkan states would resent them for it. And this is what you call a crisis. And then, Russia stepped in. Back to the Crimean War again. Last episode, we mentioned how Russia invaded the Balkans when fighting the Ottomans because they thought it would inspire a popular uprising, correct? And they were wrong, correct? Well, that was 20 years ago. A lot had changed in that time. Now, the Balkans were practically begging for independence, and the Ottomans were too much to take on alone. Russia, still seeing themselves as the true defenders of Orthodox Christians in the Balkans, stepped in. With their modernizing military and reinvigorated populace, it was the perfect time to get some mud on the tires of their shiny new war machine. Serbia, Bulgaria, Herzegovina, and Montenegro were already weeks, months, or even years into their revolts when Russian boots entered the Balkan Peninsula in 1877. After a few setbacks and miscalculations, the Russian army was able to coordinate with the armies of the Balkan states in driving the Ottomans further and further south in battle after battle. In January 1878, miles from the Ottoman capital of Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, the Ottomans offered a truce to Russia, who accepted. Months later, a peace treaty was signed that recognized the independence of Serbia, Montenegro, Bur Bulgaria, and Romania. The Balkans rejoiced, as their independence was guaranteed now. But things didn't look so rosy for Russia. After the defeat in Crimea, the other major powers of Europe were alarmed to see Russia exercising so much dominance in the Balkans. When the Ottomans admitted defeat, Russia established spheres of influence on the peninsula, and the Balkan nationals became very friendly toward Russia, which unnerved other European powers, notably Austria-Hungary, who wanted to establish their own dominion over the Balkan peninsula. In Hungary, Elites started to publish pro-Turk and anti-Russian propaganda in an attempt to sow anti-Russian sentiment in the new Austro-Hungarian Empire, despite the fact that Austria-Hungary, Germany, and Russia were technically in a triple alliance. So let's recap. Italy and Austria aren't on speaking terms. France and Germany are sworn rivals. Russia and the Ottoman Empire are enemies in a competition dating back centuries. Little did these countries know that they were drawing battle lines in preparation for a war that would change the world forever.
Thanks for joining me today on Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. Thank you for joining me in the journey that we're taking to learn the history of the European continent in the 19th and 20th centuries to explore, again, the most complicated series of events, in my opinion, in human history. If you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop me a five-star review and even think about leaving me something nice to read in the future. It really does help us get more people involved with the conversations about history, which I think is one of the most important things in the world at this point in our history as human beings. Another reminder that this podcast is listener-supported, so if you would like to make a monetary donation... Head over to the Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened page on Anchor.fm and there is a button there that will allow you to make a monetary donation on a monthly basis. That would mean the world to me. So thank you to those who have done it already. Uh, maybe I'll start reading names who, of people who have donated to me in the future. We'll see. In the meantime, read about history, everybody. I'll catch you in the next episode, part four of the Conflict of Nations series where we examine the scramble for Africa.